Good morning, church. I feel like every week there's a new and different reason to tell you that I love you. <laughs> it's a weird morning, isn't it? It's just kind of surreal. Um, I feel like on the one hand, on the one hand, if I don't say anything and acknowledge sort of what we're living in and what we're dealing with, um, then, then you come across like oblivious or uh, worse that we don't care and we do, we care. Um, both for the sicknesses and the financial impact that sort of what we're going through is causing. So I don't want us to, to think for a second that we're not aware of, of what we're living in and, and dealing with. But on the other hand, if that's all we talk about and all we focus on, we, have, uh, we run the, the risk of exaggerating the fears that are already there and making things even worse, and we don't want to do that either. So just know that your church family loves you, and we're here for you, and we're going to go through whatever this is and whatever is ahead together, that we love each other and we trust in God, uh, come, come what may. Uh, but I hope it's okay with you that we continue our current series, because uh, that's uh, because there are other things that we're dealing with in our lives, right? There are all kinds of things. And, and a lot of the things that we're dealing with in our lives are relational, relational. Outside of whatever may happen in our community and in our country and in our world, we're dealing with relational things. And I think sometimes, sometimes we think, or I have this tendency to think that everybody else's relationships are better than mine. Especially with social media, it makes it really easy to feel like everybody else's ha family is happy and healthy and every everything seems to be going well for them and whatever they post online, it's like, I doubt they ever have any fights or arguments. I, I bet they always get along. Doesn't it feel like that? And you feel like sometimes you're, you're the only one that loses your temper. You're the only one that says things that you shouldn't say. You're the only one that says things that you regret. Or, or maybe your family's the only one that, that's fighting and arguing. But the truth is, and we probably know this, whether we acknowledge it to ourselves or not, but almost every family has something. Some issue that they're dealing with. Some topic that, that has become just, just too painful to deal with. Something that has been going on maybe for days, maybe for weeks, maybe for months, maybe for years. Something that has caused tension something that, that maybe hasn't been discussed, maybe even so bad that maybe two or more people in a family or maybe in a friendship just haven't talked to each other in days or weeks or months or maybe even years. Almost every family is dealing with something like that, some issue, some topic that hurts. And sometimes I'm afraid what happens is that people feel like church that being part of God's family is only for people or families that have it all worked out. And so there are people, maybe you or maybe somebody that you know or somebody that you love that feels like I'm not worthy to be here. I'm not worthy to be part of this. That church is for people who have good families or families that don't fight or families that don't argue or families that don't have issues like ours. Have you ever felt that way? Or maybe known somebody that felt that way and thought churches for families that have it all figured out. Well, you know what dispels that myth better than anything else? The Bible, right? Because there are very few families that have as many as deeply rooted or as big of issues as some of the families in Scripture, in fact, I would argue that that's what First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings is all about. 
is to remind the people of Israel who, as they're reading this, the very first audience of this, because the story ends up with them in captivity and exile in Babylon, for, for them to be reminded, yes, our family of Israel is deeply, deeply flawed, but you can still be faithful to God. God still wants your faithfulness. You are not beyond repair. You are not beyond reconciliation. Whatever has happened, whatever's gone on, whatever you've done, whatever you failed to do, it can be put back together and you can still be faithful to God. Specifically is one of those families that if you think for a second your family has problems, just look at David's family and you'll know that you're not the only family with problems. You're not the only family with flaws. So let's think about the, the family of David this morning. And we talked last week about David's sin with Bathsheba. And then after that, in 2 Samuel, everything just seems to come unraveled. Almost the next story after David sins with Bathsheba, and Nathan talks to him about that. Remember, we talked about that last week. Then, then you have this story that's just too horrible to even describe between David's son Amnon and his daughter Tamar, and Amnon takes advantage of his sister Tamar, and then David apparently doesn't really do anything. He's mad about it, but there's no discipline, and so his other son Absalom takes matters into his own hands, and he murders his brother Amnon. So this horrible thing happens, and then it's followed up by one brother murdering another brother. And so David has lost two sons in one day, one by murder and one by exile because Absalom knows he can't go back home after he's just killed his brother. And so he goes to his mother's homeland of Gesher and he runs away and he hides and he's sort of in exile. So look in your text at 2 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 1. Now Joab, now remember Joab is the commander of David's army, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. I mean, that's kind of an understatement, isn't it? This is dad, and his son has murdered his other son, but he still loves his son. But he can't. He's in a position because he's king, right? He's king. And, and everybody expects justice to be served. And, and what, what's going to happen if he just says, ah, never mind, forget about it, come back home? And so on the one hand, I'm sure, on, on the one hand, he thinks, I'm king, and this, and what he's done is wrong. And on the other hand, I love my son, and so he longs for him. And Joab knows that the king is longing for his son Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner. Now, recognize she's pretending. So all, all the words that she's about to say and the story she's about to tell, Joab is putting into her mouth. Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been in mourning for many days for the dead. I can't help but read this story and think of the one we just talked about last week with Nathan. Remember, Nathan came to David and he told him sort of a fictitious story about uh, a man who stole another man's lamb. And it's like, all of David's friends feel like they got to trick him into doing something that he's supposed to do, right? And so this woman goes to David and tells this story that, that she's made up or that Joab has told her to tell. 
Verse 3, go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, save me, O king. And the king said to her, what is your trouble? She answered, alas, I am a widow and my husband is dead. And your servant had two sons and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them and one struck the other and killed him. Now I wonder as this woman who's bowing down on the ground before David and saying, I am in a desperate situation. My husband is gone, and the only thing I had left in the world were my two sons, and they were out in the field, and they were fighting with each other, and one of them killed the other one. Now, I wonder when she says this, does David think to himself, I know what she's going through, right? Because he has the same situation going on in his life, but the story's just different enough that that David maybe doesn't see the connection or or doesn't make the connection immediately. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant and they say, give up the man who struck his brother that we may put to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Now, the clan is doing what is legally permissible, right? This, this brother that's still alive is a murderer, and so the law says that the murderer can and should be put to death, right? And so the clan is going after the living son. And, and maybe, to put it, to connect it to David's situation, maybe David feels like, on the one hand, this is probably what needs to happen to Absalom. He probably needs to be put to death for the death of Amnon. But yet, at the same time, this mom is like, you can't let that happen. He's my only son. He's my only heir. He's the only son of his father who's died. This would kill and destroy our family. So you can't let this happen. So on the one hand, there's this tension, isn't there, between justice and mercy, Something has been done that is wrong. And so on the one hand, you think, yeah, justice needs to be served. But on the other hand, on the other hand, there's this love of a parent for their child and this desire for them to experience mercy. Verse 8, then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord, the king. And on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. Now, why would she say that? Why would she say, why would she say, don't let anybody put the blame for this on you? Because what David is saying is, let justice go undone, in a sense, right? Let justice go undone. I'm going to have mercy on him. Nobody's going to kill him. And she says, if, if there's guilt for this, then let it be on me and not on you. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son be not destroyed. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So when it comes down to that justice or mercy, on which side does David land? Mercy, right? And he says, no, nobody's going to kill your son. No, if they do, if anybody comes after them, then they have to, then they have to deal with me. So nobody can deal out retribution for what's happened. I'm landing on the side of mercy. And I just want to kind of pause there for just a second and ask us this. 
Because David, is, this is interesting what's going on, isn't it? Because on the one hand, he has this situation with his own son. And his own son is far away in a distant land and not coming back and not having a relationship with dad because of what's happened. And so he's sort of carrying out justice there, right? And there's this implication that if Absalom were to come home right then, there would be a trial and there would be death, right? Because Absalom is a murderer. But yet, now that he's dealing with someone else's kid and someone else's family, he doesn't land on that side of retribution and justice. He lands on the side of mercy. And I just want to ask us for a second, do, do we ever tend to do this? Be more merciful with someone else's family than we are with ours? Do we ever tend to be more merciful when it comes to someone else? rather than to the situation that we're in. When we're in the situation, we think, no, justice has to be served, right has to be done, this was wrong, this shouldn't have happened, and I'm not going to talk to you, or have anything to do with you, or let this go until justice is served. But when it's somebody else's family, when it's someone else's situation, when it's someone else's kid, we can say, well, you know, just, let's just, let's just put this behind us. Let's just reconcile. Let's just Let's just let what's done be done and let's move on. It's really easy sometimes, isn't it? To be more merciful to someone else's family than it is to our own. And that's exactly what's going on in this situation. Verse 12, then the woman said, please let your, let your servant speak a word to my Lord, the king. He said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, inciting with mercy, inciting with my son instead of the avengers, for in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. David has this chance to rule on behalf of the son or rule on behalf of the avengers of blood. And who does he come down in favor of? The son. He comes down in favor of mercy. And so the woman wisely turns the situation and says, but do you see? Do you see in your own situation, you're siding with the avenger of blood and you are convicting yourself. You're saying what's right in this situation is mercy should prevail instead of judgment. What, what should happen here is mercy. What should happen here is forgiveness. What should happen here is reconciliation. But yet, she says, you convict yourself because that's not what you are pursuing in your own family. And in fact, by depriving the nation of Absalom, the, the apparent heir to the throne, you're depriving the nation of their family just as I'm being deprived of my family. So you are convicting yourself. Verse 14, and here this is probably my favorite verse in the Old Testament. I, I just love it, and it's so packed full of truth. She says, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. I mean, that's just a profound statement, isn't it? And I wonder though, like, what does she mean by that? Like, how is she applying that to situation? We must all die. We must all die. 
And, and when we die, we're like water spilt on the ground that can't be gathered up again. And it's interesting, as I read through various commentaries, different comment, uh, commentators had different ideas on what she means by this. And, and maybe it's a combination of all of them. I don't know. But, but maybe she means David. You're going to die. I'm going to die. We're all going to die. And if we don't take care of what needs to be taken care of now, eventually it's going to be too late. Maybe Joab has sent this woman to David to talk to him, to get him to bring Absalom back home and to make things right before David dies. Maybe Joab's afraid, listen, you're getting up there and you could die at any point. And if you die while Absalom is still estranged from you, it's not going to be good for anybody. And so you need to take care of things while you still can. There's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? We have to take care of things while we still can. Maybe she means, like Absalom is consigned to die, we're all consigned to die. Like he's been convicted of wrong and he's going to die, we're all going to die. And she'll go on to say, but God doesn't really want that. He doesn't relish our death. So maybe she means that. Or maybe, maybe by death she's, she's reminding us of Amnon, the one who was murdered. And maybe she's reminding us that he can't be gathered up again. Maybe she's reminding David that we're all going to die. And when we die, it's like water spilled on the ground. And there's no way to gather it up again. What's done has been done. And there's no way to fix it. There's no way to gather up the water again. And man, that has a lot of application, doesn't it? And I know that when I've messed up, usually when I mess up, I've never murdered anybody. But when I've messed up, it's the words that have come out of my mouth. And I said something I shouldn't have said. I said something about somebody I shouldn't have said, or I said something in, in the heat of a moment that I shouldn't have said. And it's, it's similar. It's like water spilled on the ground. You know, the, I love the, the metaphor of the toothpaste. You squeeze it out, and you can squeeze out toothpaste so fast, how do you get it back in the tube? You know, you can't. And if you pour water out of a jar onto the ground, it's out, and there's no way to gather it up and put it back again. But sometimes, sometimes we, we're in a situation and it's almost like we expect the other person, the one who's poured out the water, to put it back in the jar. And we're like, I'm not going to have a relationship with you until you put the water back in the jar. I'm not going to have a relationship with you until you find a way to gather all the water and put it back. Well, guess what? It can't happen. Nothing Absalom can do. Nothing David can do can bring Amnon back. Just like the crime that Amnon committed, nothing can undo it. Nothing can fix it. And if you're expecting, by holding on to this grudge, by holding on to this animosity, by keeping this person estranged, that somehow that's going to put the water back in the jar, you're going to be sadly disappointed. Nothing you can do can put the water back in the jar. And expecting the other person to be able to somehow gather it all up and undo it and fix it is in vain. It can't be done. And if this relationship stays estranged because you're waiting for them to fix something that can't be fixed, you will be waiting forever. But listen to what she says next. And she says, this is the reason, this is the reason that you ought to be reconciled to Absalom. But God will not take away life 
and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Why should you be reconciled to Absalom? Because that's the sort of thing God would do. Wow. That's the sort of thing God would do. And I can't help but think, who's the first audience reading this story? First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, for whom was it written? It was written for a banished, exiled people, right? To say this is the sort of God God is. He's the sort of God that brings banished people home. What's been done cannot be undone. What's been spilled cannot be gathered up again. The people that are dead cannot be brought back by you. You cannot fix what's been broken, but that's not going to stop God from fixing his relationship with you. That's not going to stop God from bringing you back home again. Can you imagine how comforting and encouraging that would be for the people of God who are living in Babylonian exile to read those words? This is the kind of God that our God is. He's the kind of God that devises ways. I love that. He devises ways. He comes up with these plans so that the banished one will not remain estranged from him. And then I think about us reading this as our in our day and time, as Christians, we, we were the banished ones, weren't we? The ones estranged from God, cut off from him. But through Jesus, we've been reconciled. I think about Paul's words in Ephesians 2. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, and having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is why you should pursue reconciliation. Not because the water can be put back in the jar. Not because what was broken can somehow be fixed. But because that's the kind of God our God is. That our God lands so very much on the side of mercy, and that he brings the banished ones back into the family. You know, I wish, I wish I could say, and he listened to her words, and they live happily ever after, right? I wish that's what I could say, but if you keep reading the story, you know that's not what happened. David brought Absalom back. He listened to some extent. He brought Absalom back to Jerusalem, but for two years, he wouldn't let him come into his presence. He was back in town, but he, he wouldn't let him come to his house. He still held him at arm's length and said, no, you can't come back in. And it drove him crazy. In fact, he said, I should be back in Gesher. I'm not even sure why I came back to Jerusalem. If the king's not going to let me back, if dad's not going to let me back in the house, why did I even come back? I should have just stayed away. And finally, he allows him to come back into his presence. But by then, I don't know, maybe that distance was just too much. For whatever reason, Absalom conspires to take over the throne. And then again, the, the story just continues to unravel from there. And I say all that to say that reconciliation is messy. It's hard. It's not easy. It's not as easy as just saying, you should do it, do it. <laughs> you, you should be reconciled with whoever you're holding at arm's length. Bring them back again. Be reconciled to them. It's really easy when we read Jesus' words and say, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that someone has something against you, go and first be reconciled. And those words are really easy to say, go first, be reconciled. But they're really hard to do. It's a really messy process. 
it's heart-wrenching sometimes, isn't it? And that's why we don't do it. That's why we sit here and we say, yes, I know I need to make that phone call. I know I need to send that text message. I know I need to send that email. I know I need to knock on that door. I know that I need to apologize. I know that I need to accept their apology. I know, I know, I know, I know, but it's hard. Yes, it's hard. We don't do it, though, because it's easy. We do it because that's what God has done for us. He has devised a way that the banished one, you and me, might not remain estranged from him. He brought us home in spite of what we did. There was no way to undo what we did. There was no way to fix what we broke. But Jesus said, I will go and I will be the means. I will be the way for the banished ones to not remain outcasts and he brought us in and because that's true because that's the kind of God to whom we belong then we at the same time we also we respond to that reconciliation by being reconciled to God and we also do our very best to pursue reconciliation with each other and so here's what I take away from this story don't let the things that can't be fixed keep you from fixing the things that can Don't let the things that can't be fixed keep you from fixing the things that can. And maybe maybe this does have application to our current coronavirus state, right? There are some things you just can't fix. There are some things I can't fix. But don't let the things that you can't fix keep you from fixing the things that can. You have said things. I have said things. Your family members have said things. Your friends have said things that cannot be unsaid. Man, I wish they could, don't you? As soon as they come out of my mouth, I mean, it is. It's like water getting spilled on the ground, and I think, "Mm, I wish I could just put those back. Why did I say that? Why did I say that? But don't you know that the people that have said things to you that are hurtful and painful, they probably think that as well. And insisting that they fix something that can't be fixed means never being able to be reconciled. Instead, we have to acknowledge, I can't fix that. I can't undo that, and neither can you. And so I want to pursue reconciliation anyway. Not because it's easy, not because it's not messy, but because that's what Jesus has done for us. Because God has devised a means that us, the banished ones, might not remain estranged from him. So let's not let the things that we can't fix keep us from fixing the things that can. There are so many things in our life that could be fixed if we would pursue them. Things that would get better if we would pursue them. To seek peace, to seek unity, to seek reconciliation to seek better relationships because that's what God through Jesus has done for us. Yes, we're flawed, but we can still be faithful. And maybe there's somebody here this morning and you're ready to put Jesus on in baptism. Baptism is all about reconciliation. We were all at one time cut off, estranged from God, but through Jesus we can be reconciled to God. We can be united with him in baptism. And maybe you've decided today's the day. 
that I'm reconciled with God through Jesus. Or maybe, maybe you need prayers. Maybe we can pray for you that you might have the courage and the strength to pursue reconciliation in whatever relationships that you have. Or maybe you've just got a lot on your heart and your mind and we can pray with you and for you. Our shepherds would love to meet with you after service or right now you can come forward as we stand and sing this song.